Uh, if, if you haven't been with us, the, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus, or what we call Ephesians, was written by the Apostle Paul. He's in prison uh, in Rome, and he's writing back to a church that he started, that he helped found. He said, in, uh, it says in the book of Acts, chapters 17 through 20-ish, that Paul would go into the synagogues, as was his custom, and begin reasoning with the Jews there that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And tells us that when Paul did that in Ephesus, many uh, Jewish believers came about in the synagogues, but also... Gentiles began to convert. And we talked about this in the first week that Ephesus was this kind of cultural epicenter for the Gentile people, especially. The, the temple to Artemis was there, a, a Greek god. People kind of came from all over the world to make money and to, to, to benefit from that temple. And so we see this church emerge that's made up of Jew and Gentile, uh, practicing Jews most likely because they were going into the synagogue, and then this, these kind of pagan Gentiles that practice the occult. We see in the book of Acts that they were worshiping different spirits and, and just doing some wild things. And so how does a church made up of those two groups come together? How, do they, how are they built together by God? That's the question that Paul's answering. And chapter one and the first half of chapter two, Paul tells us that in order for us to be the people of God, to be built together as God's people, uh, we need to know certain things and not just know them in our minds, but know them in experience. And so Paul prays at the end of chapter 1 that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know the power of God in real time. And to experience that, Paul says, here's what happened to you in salvation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and the ways you once walked, uh, according to the ways of the world, according to the power of the prince of the air, who's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were all enslaved to our passions and our desires, and we were by nature children of wrath. In other words, Paul says that the conflict that happens amongst human beings on this planet is the natural outcome of our enslavement to our own desires and to the devil himself. But then in verse 4, Paul said, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together, Jew and Gentile experiencing resurrection life through the person of Jesus, seated in the heavenlies. And then last week we saw, Paul says, if you really want to know the power of what God has done for you in Jesus, it's not just understanding your salvation, but it's also understanding how God took us from these divergent backgrounds and made us now into one people. He says to the, to the Gentiles, you were once cut off. You were, you were foreigners. You, you, were, you were outside the promises of God, outside the nation of Israel, without hope. In Israel, you probably thought you had a leg up, but your circumcision was made with human hands. But now in Jesus, he's forming us together as one, one church, one people built around the person of Jesus. And so that's where we pick up today. We, we jump back in to the very end of, of chapter two and these really pivotal, important verses, uh, starting in verse 18. Paul concludes this section by saying, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So I just want to jump in today. Uh, we got a lot to, to cover and a little bit of time to do it. We want to put a 
bow on this particular section, and then we'll move into the the latter half of the rest of the book of Ephesians in the spring. But uh, to conclude this, I really want to kind of encapsulate all that we've studied thus far by asking really two questions. I think that I think that what Paul has said to us thus far in the letter to the church at Ephesus really gives us two primary questions we're supposed to ask, and then maybe we can get an answer to those two questions. They or two answers I'll suggest to you today before we conclude by looking at kind of two application points or two big takeaways. So, so that's, that's what I want to do with these just four verses that we just read. I, I want to conclude by asking two questions, look at two answers that the text gives us, and then two application points before I send you on your merry way on this Lord's day. Uh, the first question I want to ask is simply this. I think if we've studied Paul and we've studied the, the letter to the church in Ephesus thus far, we, we're left with this pressing question as the church, as the people of God. Is it really possible, is it really possible for the work of Jesus to be so deep and so profound that we can overcome the multitude of barriers and divisions, many of which have existed amongst race and class throughout all of human history? That's a big question. And that's really the pressing question of this passage. Is it really possible? Do we really believe that the work of Jesus is so deep in our lives and so profound to us as human beings that it enables us to overcome the multitude of of barriers, obstacles, and, and instances of division that have existed amongst human beings, especially amongst things like race and class, for as long as human history is recorded? That's why I've said throughout this series that Paul is so emphatic in these first three chapters about teaching us to know and understand what has happened for us in salvation. Because the work of God, the work of Jesus himself on the cross, dying in our place for our sins, has the power or has the capacity, if we experience it, to enable God's people, the only people I believe on the planet who have the, possess the power for this to happen by the Spirit of God, to overcome the very things that divide all of humanity and has ever since the beginning of time. Or ever since maybe Genesis 3, we should say. Which then comes to a follow-up question. If that is the case, if what God has done for you in salvation, by rescuing you, by bringing you from death to life, by seating you in the heavenlies with Jesus, as Paul says, if what God has done for you in Christ is so significant that that power exists, then the second follow-up question is, how then do we become the people of God together? Especially despite our profound racial, cultural, and socioeconomic differences. How does that functionally happen? What needs to happen in order, A, for us to experience the power to overcome these divisions, and B, to to walk that out in real time and in our lives? That's the big question. As Paul concludes this, he, he drills down on some kind of big foundational theological truths. We saw it there in verse 18, for through him, that is Jesus, we have access together by the Spirit to the Father. We are being built together, Paul says, as a temple, as the dwelling place for God. Do you believe it this morning? And then how do you live that out? Or how do you walk that out? That's the two questions. Now, the two answers I'm going to get to need a little bit of a preface. So we've talked about this as we've studied the book of Ephesians, that the first half of this letter is written in something called the indicative, meaning that Paul is indicating certain things have occurred. Because Jesus has lived and died and rose Here's what God has done for us. The second half of the letter, which we'll study in subsequent months, is, uh, is written in the imperative. If God has done this in you, this then is how we live as God's people. 
This is how this gets worked out in our lives. There's only one command, and we talked about this last week, in all of the first three chapters of this letter. And we saw it last week. Paul said it twice. Remember. The way that we experience the power that enables us to overcome obstacles and divisions, the way that we walk out this profound new reality of Jew and Gentile, race, class, all those things being absolved in the person of Jesus such that we can be, be new citizens, we can be a new family, we can be the temple together. The way that that happens is first and foremost by remembering, by going back and recalling what God has done for us in Christ, by, by remembering that the power to live that way is not of our own doing. It is a gift, Paul says. It's, not by, it's by grace we're saved, not, not by works, so that none of us can boast. So when we remember what God has done for us in salvation, only then can we lay down this superiority that we feel that we have over some other people group, over some particular nation or state or ideology. Only when we remember it's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works so no one can boast, can we lay down the hostility as we saw last week. Only when we realize all of us got in the same way. Access was granted to us by the person of Jesus, as verse 18 says. Only, only can we be united to God by the Spirit of God himself. Only when we remember that can we access the power to be these sorts of people. And then there's two answers, I think, to how we, what we specifically need to remember in order for that to be true of us. Look back again in verse 18, and we'll pick up there and start looking at these two particular answers. In verse 18, we read it, uh, For through him, that is Jesus... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. And here's our first answer. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The first answer to how we, what we need to remember in order to live this out, an eternal change has occurred. In Christ, by faith, when you trust Jesus by faith, a change has happened in, in the, very, the very nature of who you are as a human being, such that some, some new realities begin to emerge. And Paul points out, I think, three of them, and they, they go from sort of general to specific or, or public to private as, as it works itself out in, in the way the people of God are shaped and formed. The first thing that he says in this change is we have a change in status. We have a change in status. We've gone from aliens and foreigners. We've gone from those who, who did not have the, the right to the promises of God to now being made citizens. Now, I don't know. Um, I'm just working off this assumption that most of you, I would guess, probably like me, were born into the, the, the nation of your citizenship. That seems to be the majority case. You know, I know there's probably some exceptions here this morning, but for the most part, most of us are born you know, Americans, and therefore the benefits, the privileges of being an American comes with that by, by nature of birth. And some of you probably have never had to you know, transition your citizenship or go from a, a citizen of one place to another, but it's a, it's a very profound, significant event. Um, you know, we, we're right now working with one of our church planners who's dealing with citizenship issues. He's uh, back in his home country now, and it, it's, it's kind of a, a dicey situation because prior to being a citizen of, of a particular country or nation, your, the, the, the country or the nation that you're, you're coming into, really kind of the authority exists as almost a threat. Like if you've ever gone through customs in a, another country, you realize like they're, they're looking at your visa, they're looking at your passport, they're looking at the... the, the 
the paperwork that you must possess in order to enter in. And they have the power. And if you don't have the rights to be there, they can push you out. They can kick you out. They can kind of do whatever they want. But once you become a citizen, you go from the authority is a threat to the authority is now a gift. The authority that they possess now gives me particular privileges and, and rights and benefits. Now, I heard a story recently of a guy who immigrated to the U.S. talking about this very thing. And he, he said that he had uh, moved from, from Texas to Tennessee while his paperwork was in process. He thought he had done everything he needed to do to get his green card. And then he got a letter in the mail from the FBI that said, you've got to be in Texas tomorrow for a hearing. And if you're not there, you're blacklisted. We're going to find you. We're going to kick you out of the country and you can't come back. And he was like, oh, no. So he has to jump in a car and drive to Texas and get all this worked out because his citizenship is at stake. And he talked about when he finally did become a U.S. citizen, what a profound privilege it was and how all the things that before were a threat are now a benefit. Now that the people are for him. And that's the imagery that, that, that Paul gives us when he talks about what happens in, in faith when we trust in Christ. We go from those outside the the, the, the nation of the people of God to those who are included, such that the privileges and the benefits of access are now uh, bestowed upon us. We've become citizens. And this fundamental change changes the way we operate in, in the world. It reorients uh, the, way we, the way we live. The, the very essence of life is changed by the fact that we become citizens of, of a new kingdom. Read a story once of William Willimon talking about this. He's a, he's a bishop, I think, in the Methodist Church, but he had written about how this is what happens in salvation. How when we trust Christ by faith, all of our previous anxieties and, and fears and 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 you know sins are, are now put in a new light as a citizen, where we have to rethink what it means to be human in light of our citizenship. And he told this story uh, about having a, a refugee from another country come to his elementary school in Greenville, South Carolina, when he was a little kid. He says. In the sixth grade, this blonde kid shows up one day, and our teacher informs us that the new member of our class is from Poland. He is a displaced person who has come to live in Greenville after the war. Things are bad in Poland, our teacher tells us. One of my classmates punches me in the side and says, Poland must be hell for somebody who wants to move to, from there to a place that sucks like Greenville. The kids seemed nice enough, except for his lack of English, but we quickly discovered that the displaced person had a problem. He stole food from people's lunch sacks. Almost everybody had seen him do it. An apple here, a sandwich there. The teacher would scold him. Although he had lunch of his own every day, during the morning recess, he continued to steal food. One day, after a young girl tearfully reported two missing cookies, the teacher called the displaced person up before the class and said, Look at me. This is America. There is enough food here for everyone. If you ever need food, all you have to do is tell me. The war is over. This isn't Poland. And you could see his eyes lighten as if someone was finally making sense. It was the last time that he stole. He had awakened to the facts. He had been moved to a different location, exchanged citizenship, no longer displaced. He was home. Conversion is waking up to the discovery that we are now living in a different place than we had supposed. Our primary citizenship has been changed. Now, Paul says when we trust Christ by faith, we go from foreigners, from, from aliens, from exiles, from those on the outside to those who've now been brought near and are, and are in. And the privileges, the benefits, all the promises of God that was extended to Israel way back in the Old Testament, now through the Messiah Jesus, now are extended to us, which means that 
all of those fears, all of those anxieties, all of the ways of operating in the world that felt quite natural as displaced people, people without a home, people without citizenship, all of that is now laid to rest. We've been brought in, Paul says. We've been made citizens. Our, our status has fundamentally changed by faith in Jesus. Secondly, he says we have a change in identity. We, we've gone from outsiders to citizens, but we've also become family. God has made a new family of the adopted children of his that have been brought to life, as John says in John chapter 1, as we talked about in baptism, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man. We've been brought to life by God himself through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. We, we have become family. Paul says it like this. He says uh, back again in verse 19, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, uh, we do some work here at Living Hope with, with foster care and, and, and adoption, and I've seen folks go from not a part of a family to a part of a family, and I've seen the profound impact that that typically has in the lives of a young boy or a young girl who went from kind of orphaned or alone to now belonging in some way, and that's the imagery that Paul gives of all human beings who, through faith in Christ, have been brought into God's household. Your, your very identity has changed. You're now part of the family of God. Now, one thing about family, if you dig into this, and you're probably going to experience this even this week, maybe around Thanksgiving, is you don't get to pick your family. Because if you did, you may have different people eating lunch with you on Thursday. <laughs> you could say, you, not you, you, like you, definitely not you. You would go through and pick them out. But if God makes us family by grace alone through faith alone, if we're a part of the church and made into this new being, this new, this new identity given to us by, by virtue of grace alone, then we don't get to pick who's a part of this family either. Which means that, as we'll see when we get to the latter half of this letter and Paul begins to work out for us what it looks like to be a part of the family of God, even as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus, so also are you to forgive one another. That's pretty profound. It means that you can no longer grade people um, levels of acceptance based on whether or not they do or don't live up to your expectations. They can no longer be reduced to, as we talked about last week, an abstraction of just an ideology so you can dismiss them or dehumanize them. No, they're family. And that means it's going to take some work. Just like Thursday is going to be work for some of y'all to sit around and eat some turkey and mashed potatoes with some folks. That It's a challenge. But we've been brought in by grace alone, through faith alone. And so because we're family, we got to work at it. Lastly, Paul says that it's not just that we have a change in status and a change in identity. We have a change in, in being. We, he says, Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider brought together. We, he says, are the temple of God the very dwelling place of God himself. And, and what I love about the way that Paul frames this for Jew and Gentile is that both of them have radically divergent views of what temple means, I think. Because the Jews, when they hear temple, they think what? The temple in the Old Testament, the, the, the place where heaven and earth met, the place where the Holy of Holies existed, where the priests could go in one day a year and could make atonement for our sins. And the Gentiles are like, temple, you mean like the thing for Artemis, the thing that, that resources us, it gives us income and livelihood. And so when Paul says this word, he's, 
giving them a completely new concept of what a temple even is. He says, look, in him you are being built together. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, he says, this this fixed rock that existed around which the entire temple would be constructed such that they would know what, what square was and what plumb line was, that Jesus would be the fixed point where everyone else would be arranged so that the whole thing would be built up appropriately, in whom the whole structure, verse 21, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. This is how vital and significant our relational harmony with one another is. That if we can't coexist together in this thing called the church, we're not just tearing down relationships that may, may seem at times inconvenient or challenging. We're, we're, we're tearing down the very temple of God's existence and dwelling for us. God brings us together to dwell amongst us, to be in our midst. He, he, he works in such a way so that we would be his residence. That we would be the place where the power of God would be displayed. That we would be the place where the spirit of God would be manifest. That's why relational harmony, that's why unity is at the forefront of what it means to be the local church. Because we're, we're representing our Father who's joined us to himself by his spirit, who wants to dwell in our midst. That's why Jesus would say, if you go to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the, at the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. It's that important. It's that significant. Vertical love between subject and God is only really manifested and shown through in, in horizontal love between us and neighbor. We are now the temple. We are the place where God dwells. So that's the first thing we're supposed to remember. We're supposed to remember that this eternal change has occurred amongst us, that we are no longer outsiders. We've been made citizens. We're, we're no longer just a random collection of people. We're family. We're no longer just an amalgamation of you know, different voting blocks and ideologies. We are the temple of God himself. It carries with it this, this weight of, of, of taking seriously what it means to be a part of the church. And then, lest we be crushed by that weight, Paul gives us one more thing we're supposed to remember, one more answer to that question. What is it we remember so that we experience this profound power of God to overcome these obstacles and these hurdles that have existed amongst human history for as long as we, we've, we've known? We've got to realize an eternal person is the one who sustains it. So an eternal change has happened to us. If we're saved by grace, we're also going to be sanctified through grace, and it is God's power that sustains brings together this very thing called the church. An eternal person will sustain it. Look back again in verse 18. Paul says it this way. For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. For through him, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have access. We are bound together. Through Jesus, through the Son, through Christ's death, we have access. So Paul says we got to remember that Jesus' death on the cross, specifically what we saw last week, his blood that was shed on the cross, is a uniting force in our lives. When Jesus was bleeding out on the cross, he didn't look down and say, okay, this only applies to, to the people that are, that are getting it right. This only applies to the people who've gone through this particular channel or overcome these particular hurdles. He bled for the world. He gave his life that we would be called sons and daughters. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that that could be so. He bled on our behalf. So Paul says we have access through that, through, through the Son, in our place for our sins. If you go back and look at the Old Testament, 
And he'd look at all the purification rites that individuals had to go through in order to go into the temple. All the ways that those who were unclean, especially like Gentiles, had to uh, perform certain acts in order to be marked off as clean just so they could get a glimpse, perhaps, of being somewhere near the presence of God. It's the imagery that Paul gives us of what has happened to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been purified. Our sins have been forgiven. As we saw back in chapter 1, he's not just forgiven us, he's redeeming us. He's buying us back from the power of the devil and from, from the enslavement of our own desires and passions. Because of that, if we remember that, we have access through the Son. But we're also indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So this is an idea that Paul has been building out from the very beginning of this letter. The Spirit seals us, as we saw at the end of chapter 1. The Spirit is a seal that says, this thing, this person belongs to me. The, the Spirit is the thing that authenticates our faith. That When the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us, it means that we do belong to God. We've been possessed by Him. He's taken ownership over us. The seal is the thing that marks us off as different. It shows that we're, we're unique in a way, that, that the power that we have to overcome sin, the power that we have to love our neighbor, it comes not from within us. It comes from God himself. The Spirit is our guarantee, Paul said at the end of chapter 1. This, this down payment that, that is a promise that God will make all those promises come true to us. All the promises of God will be yes and amen to us in the return of Christ. And the Spirit dwells within us to affirm that. You feel that in your bones when you read the word. The Spirit confirms in your heart and in your soul, this is for you. You belong to God, and God belongs to you now. And now Paul says that the Spirit is what's pulling us together, building us together to be this dwelling place, to be this temple. The Spirit unites us. The Spirit aligns us. The Spirit convicts us of sin so that we can go to another individual and say, you know what, I got it wrong, and I need your forgiveness the Spirit prompts us to look at the other, even the other for whom we have maybe massive dis disagreements and differences and say, you know what? God's affection is on them. God's power is for them as well. Who am I to draw a line here? I move towards them, not away from them. That's the Spirit of God at work within us, indwelling us, making us this holy temple. And then finally, Paul says, that's for the glory of God, because God is glorified when we dwell together in harmony. God's name is magnified when the church stands out as different in a world fraught with conflict, where drawing lines and demonizing the other is the way that it works. The Spirit of God dwells within us to, to bring glory to God when we're like, you know what? We're not like that here. We refuse to capitulate to that identity or that ideology. We are instead the people of God, set apart for the purposes of God to live into the glory of God. Far be it from us to go around drawing lines and saying, I'm in, you're out. Being, being content with the conflict that the world relishes. The, the conflict that the world uses to turn a profit. I mean, after all, that's what most of our news outlets are. Here's the, here's the people you should be afraid of. After the, after the commercial break, we'll tell you more. And so the Spirit of God dwells, indwells the people of God so that we can bring glory to God by not buying that lie anymore. By saying, you know what, the person who sits across from me in my local church, they may vote differently than me. They may have some different thoughts about public policy, but they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as well. And so it is my, my obligation and my privilege as a follower of Jesus to find the unity that we alone can share in the person of Jesus. That's the difference. Which gets us then to, I think, two applications that I want to talk about. I'll close with these. Hopefully I'll be quick. I can't make any promises, though. 
two quick application points of what we do with this kind of thunderous gavel dropping at the end of Ephesians 2, kind of the heartbeat of what Paul wants to walk out from this point forward in the church of Ephesus as they find this, this new status, this new identity, this, this new family they're a part of being the, the very temple where God's presence dwells. First thing I would simply say, and this comes from hearing, reading, and understanding this, and then looking out at what's up against us in the world around us, um, I think that one of the greatest application points that we can take from the first two chapters of Ephesians is be where you are. Just be where you are. What do I mean by that? So Paul, we talked about this in week one. Paul is writing a letter to a group of people who exist in a place. And that place even shapes the way that he writes the letter. So even here, we see some of it. I told you in week one that, that Ephesus, because of the Temple of Artemis, was a place where there were lots of construction guilds. There's a lot of construction workers living in Ephesus at this time because they had to build the Temple to Artemis. Uh, that's how they had their livelihood. And so when Paul writes the letter, he writes the letter with construction language. We saw it at the end of chapter one. We said that we could understand and know that the depth, the height, the width of the love of God. He's using construction language. He does it here, saying Jesus is the cornerstone. All the guys who built the buildings know like, oh, okay, that's what he means. Jesus is the fixed point of, upon which we we've derive our identity and true north. It's our plumb line. So I think what, what we can take from this is, especially for a people for whom these divisions have been eradicated, one of the challenges that we face in the 21st century that people in Ephesus may not have faced is that we have the ability to not be where we are. What I mean by that uh, is because of, of television, because of social media, because we're walking around with a satellite in our pocket at any given moment, we, we can be fixated on things other than where we are all the time if we want to, 24-hour news cycle if we, if we want it. And what is increasingly a challenge, especially in the 21st century in the local church, is, it, is pastoring a people who can, who can know everything about something that they have nothing to do with while doing nothing about something that they could do everything with. So we can be intimately acquainted with an insane amount of details of a geopolitical conflict that has nothing really to do with our zip code. And at the same time, we don't know our next door neighbor's name. Have you thought about that? Like, there are things that we are utterly powerless to do anything about that are captivating our hearts, our affection, and our attention, and even driving our anxieties and our fears. Meanwhile, there's stuff happening next door that we have all sorts of power to do something about, and we're oblivious to it. We feel informed. We feel dialed in because we're captivated by the 24-hour news cycle. We know what's going on all over the planet, but yet the person struggling in the cubicle next to us at work or across the street, we don't even know if they exist. So when Paul is telling the church at Ephesus to be the church at Ephesus, he's not saying figuratively, like now that God has resolved all these tensions and taken away the dividing wall of hostility, you, you can be, you know, all things to all people. He's saying do that there. Do that in Ephesus. That's why he's writing to construction workers in languages they'll understand. Go back to work. And when you hammer on the cornerstone tomorrow, think about Jesus. And when you're sitting across the table from your Jew or Gentile brother, realize you're a part of a new family. Your citizenship has changed. You're now the temple. 
be where you are. And the only way that I think we can do that as the local church is to commit to one another. That's the second application point that I give you. Just you got to commit to one another. Again, we, we live in a unique time in, in world history. Not only, not, not only can we be everywhere, can we be, know everything about something we have no power over, we can, we can also, we can attend a church via the internet, in our minds at least, on the other side of the planet. And that may feel great. You may get some of the best teaching in the world. I helped with a, uh, a preaching class at Calvin Seminary several years ago, and they were talking about what challenges do preachers face in the, in the 21st century that they may not have faced in the 20th century. And one of the things that my group came up with was like, you know, 50 years ago, if I was an average preacher, I was only going to be compared to the average preacher of the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church and the Presbyterian Church. But now if I'm an average preacher, I'm compared to the 10 best communicators on the planet that are on your Instagram feed whenever you open your phone. Like th That's a different set of circumstances. And so the local church, in order to be the local church, has got to be somewhat content with her imperfections. There's a measure of contentment with the things that are maybe not perfect, and they're never going to be perfect. So long as I'm a part of it, I'm a sinner. So long as you're a part of it, you're a sinner. We're going to have some issues, right? It's like I said, if you guys knew everything I've done, you wouldn't show up to hear me preach. But if I knew everything you've done, I wouldn't let you in. <laughs> Therein lies the dilemma. So we have to commit to one another. There's some giving of oneself to the other. And perhaps the best quote I've ever read on this of all time come from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of y'all will remember that name. He was the guy who wrote The Cost of the Discipleship. He was a German pastor who resisted uh, the Nazi influence, was actually executed for uh, going against Hitler. And, and he wrote a book called Life Together. It's a profound book. It was written you know, back in, the, I think, the 40s. It's still very relevant today. And he talks about how the only way for the church to really be the the beacon of light and hope, the, the living embodiment, the temple that, that reflects the glory of God to the nations. The only way for that to happen is for us to get over what he called our wish dreams. This idol that we've fixed in our minds of the perfect church where it all works out perfectly all the time. Here's how he opens it up. He says, the serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great general disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. You can laugh at that. It's a very profound statement. He essentially says, look, everyone comes with, once you become a Christian, you come into the church with an idea that we can make this thing perfect. And he says, because God is gracious, the quickest he can get you to be disillusioned with others and with yourself, the better off you are for it. The quicker you can realize like, oh, these people are crazy. And hopefully say, wait, am I crazy too? Yeah. That's why Jesus died. To reconcile us to God and to one another. But if we can't do that, if we keep holding out this, this idol, this, this vision of perfection that is not real and does not exist, it will end badly. This is what he says. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. 
He enters the, Christian, the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally, the despairing accuser of himself. That is what we cannot become. And I believe the power that God has given us through the Holy Spirit, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have access to God. We're, we're, we're citizens now, y'all. We're not at war with each other. Same team. We're in the same family. And though Thursday may look a little bit like war for your family, it's not in the church. Because we've been bought with the blood of Christ. We've been given a gift that is not our own doing. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works. So no one can boast. So let's commit to one another. Let's walk, walk alongside one another with that eye towards grace and mercy that only, we only have because God is that good to us. Such that then maybe this miracle of the people of God formed and fashioned into the image and likeness of Jesus will be what God intended for it to be to the world. Lord, we need power for that to happen. Let us remember who we are and what you've done. And in remembering, God, would you unleash that power in our lives? Let us lay down the idol of perfect community. Let us lay aside the idol of perfect church. Let us be reconciled to one another. All the ways that our ego is agitated or our pride is deflated, Lord, let us see that that's good. It's good that we're disillusioned in those ways. Because through that, Lord, you bring us to repentance and you lead us once again to, to a people who've been formed and shaped by your spirit. Would that happen to the end that you're glorified in Jesus' name? Amen.